We have been in a series of messages this summer called Infinite Grace. We've been studying our way through the book of Galatians, and we come this morning to uh, part of the, the beginning part of the last chapter in Galatians chapter 6. And as we do this, I just want to give you a little bit of context, and, and it goes sort of like this. Uh, the Apostle Paul had been a part of the, of the start of these churches in this region of what is now Turkey. And he got them started and told them about Christ, and everything was off to a good start. And Paul went on and started some other churches and then returned home. And he got word about two years after he'd been uh, pastoring these churches that some other pastors had come in and had started teaching God's people that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not enough. That, yes, we need to be forgiven by the blood of Christ, but in addition to that, we have to also obey certain laws and, and fulfill certain requirements of, of obedience and diet and dress and all these kinds of things. And the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Paul writes back to these churches the letter of Galatians that we call the letter of Galatians. And he says, and essentially, uh, what, what is wrong with you? Did you not hear a word I said? It's grace. It is by grace, he says this in a different letter, but it is by grace we have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so um, Paul is reiterating this truth throughout his writings to this, these churches. And as we come towards the close of his letter, uh, we will see his sort of last couple of attempts to reiterate this simple truth that our standing before God is not determined by what we do. It is determined by what Christ has done on our behalf. And so uh, Paul is sort of uh, winding up and he takes one final shot at perhaps the greatest enemy of grace, which is human pride. And you'll hear Paul sort of uh, taking a big stick and whacking human pride upside the head in this passage. It's an attempt on Paul's part to emphasize the humility that God is trying to cultivate in the hearts of his people. So, read with me. I'm going, to be, I'm going to begin in the very last verse of chapter 5 in the book of Galatians, verse 26, and I'm going to read through chapter 6, verse 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. When my oldest daughter was born, um, you know, as, as any father would do, I, I picked her up and held her in my arms, and I just looked at this beautiful little bundle of sermon illustrations, right? Um, and we got, we got Sydney home from the hospital, and, uh, you know, we had, I, I have all older siblings. I was the youngest of five, and so I've heard all the horror stories. I've gotten all the debriefing. I've gotten all the good brotherly and sisterly advice I could handle, and, and we had the book, you know, uh, what is it, what to expect your first year, right? And so, you know, we go to give her a bath the first time, and Kathy, like, starts to, you know, turn the water. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a minute. Okay, you can go. Water is good, <laughs> right? And I'm going by the book. And uh, so we get her home, and we're there at home for the first day, and uh, we put her down at night, about 10 o'clock at night was her last feeding, and um, she went, you know, we burped her or whatever, and then laid her in the bassinet next to the bed, and she went straight to sleep. They told us at the hospital, feed her every five hours, so what am I going to do? 3 a.m., that's the rule. I wake her up. I wake up Kathy. Here. She's like, really? Yeah, it's, it's 3 a.m. You know, we've got to feed this thing. It's, it might blow up or something if we don't. I don't know. <clears throat> so she nurses the baby. We burp her. We lay her back in the bassinet. <laughs> sound asleep. She goes right back to sleep. Sleeps till about... I don't know, 6, 7 a.m., you know, wakes up, goes, <laughs> all of you are hating me right now who have had kids, right? And, uh, and we just assumed we were awesome parents, right? I called my, well, my brother calls me the next morning, and this is basically how this conversation goes. <laughs> it was terrible, wasn't it? Um, well, I mean, we did have to wake up at 3 a.m. to wake up the baby and feed her. You did what? Well, we had to wake her up. She was asleep, told us to feed her every five hours. You idiot. Never wake up a sleeping baby. Just let it ride. What is wrong with you? Well, they told us to feed her every five hours. Get over it. Okay. He had three kids by that point. That's the point at which you just don't care anymore. It's just like, whatever, if you're not bothering me, I'm not doing anything. Anyway. Um, And then my parents show up 
soon on the heels of the delivery because uh, they want to see their latest addition to their pantheon of grandchildren. And uh, this baby doesn't scream. It, you know, if you want her to eat, she eats. If you want her to play, she plays. If you want her to sleep, she sleeps. And my parents are just going, this is so not fair. They would look at Kathy and say, I'm so glad you got the baby you deserved. (laughs) Him, on the other hand, has no business having a kid that's this kind and lovely and wonderful. It's just not fair. I don't know why they would say that. I was a wonderful child, really. Always doing what I was told. But I, I didn't hear anything. There's something wrong in the air conditioner, I think. Can you go look at that? All right. Um, okay. We, we thought that we just knew what we were doing, right? That would be the natural, logical assumption. We have a wonderful child. We're wonderful parents. I think that's fair, right? And uh, we have two wonderful children now, um, but the realization when the second one was born, the doctor presents her to me, and she goes, at the top of her lungs. And she really hasn't stopped. Have you stopped that yet? I don't, I don't know. But um, totally different disposition. And we very quickly realized that the disposition of a child has really nothing at all to do with the parenting that you're engaged in, right? And uh, those of you who have multiple children understand this. They're all just completely different to the point of weirdness and... Uh, you wonder sometimes, how could these all have come from the same parents? But, uh, you know, I love them both. They're both wonderful, really. That's not my, I'm not playing any favorites. Um, Just to, to sort of get to that point where Kathy and I both went, we really have no idea what we're doing. We thought we were just, you know, all in control of this whole thing, and we were wrong. We just had a kid who allowed us to believe that for a little while. That's all flipped now that she's a teenager. We won't get into that. Um, it was very humbling to to realize uh, that it wasn't us. Um, in fact, some of you know our, our, my first associate pastor here at Hope was Darden Kaler, and he and Belinda were having some problems uh, with their son, who was about Sydney's age. They were born within a year of each other. And uh, Kathy and I, being expert parents, would just offer them advice, right? Which I didn't realize Belinda would go home and, and say all kinds of unchristian things about us in the wake of that. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, when our second kid came along and we were having very similar adjustment issues to what they had been going through what did they how did they respond <laughs> right so we're going to look at some of these dynamics in this passage of our pride 
and the way that God sort of humbles us, the way we, we compare ourselves to others in their struggles, and the way we really stand at the end of the day before God. And what does he want from us as his children? Um, we're going to just sort of move through this passage one verse at a time. And you may have noticed a, a shift that actually begins in verse 1 of chapter 6, um, but is sort of anchored in verse 3. You, you see in these opening passages, like, like chapter 5, verse 26, there's this one another idea. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, there's this, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's this, this others aspect to what God is saying in this passage, and then there's the ourselves aspect of what God is saying in this passage. So I want to look at those two sides of this coin of humbling grace, that we are to look at others in humility. That's where Paul begins this discussion of Christian humility is in our in how we relate to others. He says we are to relate to others in grace, um, not in thinking that we know better than them or that we're smarter than them or that we're better parents than them or what have you, but that we're to relate to others in grace. Um, so what I'm doing with verse 26 in chapter 5 is I'm just going to put sort of a little negative sign in front of it and try to do that negative times a negative equals a positive, right? They're probably looking for me. Don't worry about it. They can't, they can't see me right now. Um, but uh, what is the opposite of being conceited? How, how pleasant is it to be around someone who is conceited? Not so much, Right? And so the opposite of that conceited person is a person who is humble and gracious. And so Paul gives us the two sort of first fruits of conceit, which is provocation and envy. So I had a friend in high school. It wasn't, I guess he's, he's actually a very good friend now. Um, I didn't really like him that much in junior high. Uh, but he was the kid who would always come running up behind you. You're at your locker or you're walking down the hallway, and he's already at a dead run, right? And he runs up behind you and just flicks the back of your ear, and he's gone before you can do anything about it. You know this kid, right? You know this kid. He's out there. Everybody's got one. And what he what he thrived on at the time was provocation. He was always provoking, always stirring up um, to the point where, uh, you know, it it got to the point where it it boiled over with one other kid and uh, they were, you know, the other kid challenged my buddy to a fight, you know, and so this happens behind the Baptist church, don't ask me why, um, after school, right, so the time and the place are set, 
and we're back between the dumpsters uh, behind the Baptist church, and it's all coming down, right? And there's this big circle of kids standing around, and we all know it's wrong, but we're there anyway. And uh, the kid who's always provoking gets a massive dose of humility. Um, And nobody really felt very sorry for him, right? But here we are in this calling to relate to others in grace, in humility and grace, to be people not who provoke but who cultivate peace, to be a people not who envy but who show respect to others. We're to look at others in humility, to relate to them in grace, and to restore others in grace. Um, Paul Paul makes a very interesting comment here. Um, He essentially says, you know, if anyone is caught in a transgression, 6-1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How do we normally respond when we see someone else obviously committing a sin? Criticism, judgment. um, And if something bad happens to them as a result of that sin, how do we feel? They had it coming, right? They had it coming. Do we feel that way about ourselves if we make a sin and something bad happens to us Do we stay, well, I had it coming? Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. Um, Paul says that we are to restore one another in grace. To be people who seek the restoration of others. To their rightful relationship with God. And we do this in gentleness, not in judgment. And he points out, I I should point out, that this is a a spiritual exercise. It requires the engagement of our spirituality if we're going to approach others in a way that is helpful to their restoration. Um, So, if I can summarize this in, uh, in Tom's words, we're to restore others in grace. Restoration is always the goal. So, if we have to say to someone, um, really? Really? You're telling me X, Y, or Z? And we have to correct or rebuke a friend or someone we love for what they're doing? The purpose, the only biblical purpose is what? The restoration of their relationship with God. And so that's always the purpose behind how we move towards others when they're stumbling and Paul tells us don't be a jerk don't be a jerk when somebody else is stumbling you are to be gracious and gentle don't be a jerk don't say I told you so Um, say how can I help you what do you need don't be a jerk and don't be a fool and the reason I put that there Paul Paul, this is sort of a hard passage to really grasp on the first reading, 
But Paul basically says, be careful when you move toward this person that you don't stumble yourself. I I don't think what he means is that whatever sin they're committing, if you get too close, you're going to commit it yourself. I don't think he's talking about the contagia of any particular sin. I think the context drives us to this idea of provoking one another and envying one another, the opposite of that gentle response. Um, Paul is saying, don't assume that you're not a sinner yourself or prone to sin yourself and that your pride won't enter into this transaction, if you will, between the person you're seeking to restore, seeking to be gracious to, and your own pride. In other words, we're prone to think that we're somehow better than a person who's stumbling, who's failed, who's fallen. And Paul says, no, don't make that mistake. That's a foolish mistake. We are all subject to sin. And so Paul says, check your pride. Look at others in humility. Relate to others in grace. Restore others in grace and serve others in grace. We are first and foremost as Christians to be servants, those who are willing to bear others' burdens, to sacrifice for others, and to fulfill the law of Christ. This is a great um, sort of ironic use of words that Paul puts here. The whole book, up until this point, he's been talking about uh, the, the folly of returning to the law, pr- primarily the Mosaic law of dietary customs, dress customs, um, other customs that all come under the umbrella of Mosaic law. Here, he makes this, this significant shift. He's been the whole time up until this point, he's been, you know, move away from the law, away from the law, away from the law. You're free in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. Grace, grace, grace. Law's over there. Grace is over here. Move this way. And now he says, fulfill the law of Christ. What? I thought you wanted us to move away from the burdens of the law. He says, it's a new law. And it's real simple. Love. Love is the law of Christ. We're to love others. To be a people who are willing to sacrifice. To bear the burdens of those who are in distress. And to love. To follow our heart as, or to follow the Holy Spirit, perhaps would be a better way of putting it, that lives within our heart. To love. To show love. To others. And so here Paul takes a shift from his discussion of relating to others in humility to our self perspective that we are called to look at ourselves in humility. Um, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We are to honestly assess ourselves. And sometimes, honestly, 
we need friends to help us in this category. Because we're, we're not always the best judges of ourselves, right? Um, my, my mentor, Buck Oliphant, who's preached here a couple times, likes to say, you know, we, we judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our motives. You know, well, I meant well, right? Whereas if somebody else had done exactly the same t- thing, we would be like, I can't believe he did that, right? And so the Apostle Paul knows this, and he says we're to be a people who can honestly assess ourselves. And then he takes this stick and smacks our human pride again. Um, If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul wants us to recognize what we bring to our salvation. His whole discussion up to this point has been about this uh, creeping of the human pride back into the equation of salvation, where Paul had taught this people, this church, these churches, that salvation is by grace. It is earned by what Christ has done, not by what we do. And the creep of human pride back into the equation of, yes, there's what Christ did. We need that. But we also must, and then just fill in the blank, uh, and carry forward. Paul says we're to recognize what we bring to salvation. What is that? Nothing. Zero. Um, If you really want to, you know, there's a pastor somewhere that I've heard, and I can't remember his name right now. But he used to say, well, if you want to know what you contribute to your salvation, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin. Ooh, well, that's not very pleasant. But it's a check on our pride because we're all prone to this this slide. And so Paul says, honestly assess yourself. Recognize what you bring to salvation and recognize what Christ brings to salvation. He brings everything. Um, all the work, all the grace, all the forgiveness, all the love, all the security comes through Christ. And so we're to look at ourselves in humility by honestly assessing ourselves and by objectively assessing ourselves. Um, Here's what Paul is saying, if you don't catch this on the first reading. Um, Avoid comparing yourself to others. This is the inevitable, well, I feel better now, right? In fact, I think I actually said this to my wife um, last night, okay? Um, We were talking about kids again, and, and as I mentioned, my oldest, who I was bragging about earlier, is now a teenager. Whole game has changed, right? And um, so we're having our nighttime discussion about whatever, and this subject comes up. And I just spent some time with my brother and his two boys, and they have a, um, my brother and his wife have a teenage daughter who's about the same age as my oldest. And uh, the, on the 
trip with my my brother and his boys, they all were commenting on how horribly sometimes their sister or daughter treats the mom. And so just last night, I said to my wife, well, would it make you feel better to know that, you know, your sister-in-law is having the same problem? Yes, as a matter of fact, it does make me feel better, right? We all do this. It's, it's common to our nature to, you know, we, we maybe feel bad about something we've done. And so we look around and we go, well, I'm not that guy. You know, I'm not an axe murderer, so I guess I'm okay. And uh, Paul says that's not exactly the way to objectively assess where we are with God. We're to avoid comparing ourselves to others. And we are to imagine ourselves alone before God. It's just us, and it's just what we have done. Now, if you're anything like me, that is at least partly terrifying, right? Alone before God, and all I have to stand on is what I have done. And it's like we talked about with the kids. At that, at that very moment, you know, God's about to drop the gavel. And Jesus stands up and says, hold on a minute. I got this one. I've already paid the fine. I've already brought him to myself. I've already shown him what forgiveness looks like. So he's free. And we're sort of expecting the worst, and we're told, case closed, case dismissed. It's taken care of. You're forgiven. You're loved. You are cherished in the eyes of God. And so we stand in this position of humility and it's good for our souls to be humbled. Um, you know, there's a verse in Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus as he relates to us. I'll just read it to you. Take me just a second. This goes back to that whole humility thing. Um, promise it's here. All right, I'm not finding it. Really? This is a good illustration of humility, I think. Pastor on the spot. He's got nothing. In my own words, what? Yeah, I've got nothing. Um, That a bruised reed he will not crush. That we go through life and we accumulate our sin 
and we bear the burdens of that, the consequences at times. And we're, we're loaded down. And God says the Messiah, this promised one, when he finds you, he won't crush you. He will lift that burden and give you forgiveness, and relief, and peace. And so we, we find this God who comes to us, who's not unwilling to bring us to that point of humility. But his goal is not humiliation. It's redemption, restoration, peace for our souls. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word, for the ways in which you challenge the very core of who we are, who we think we are, and that you call us to a life of humility, of recognition of of what we bring to this table. And there, Lord, you remind us that, that you have provided all that we need through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, soak us in that truth. Saturate our souls. Remind us, not of who we think we are, but of who we are in Christ. Loved, forgiven, redeemed. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.